That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You. Delighted to have you with me for the next hour, uh, as hopefully the conversation we're going to have will uh, will be one that's unique to you, exciting to you, inspiring to you, uh, enough to keep you listening, certainly would be the case. And I'm uh, really happy to have you here. If you're listening live, thank you so much for doing so. If you've subscribed to this as a podcast, thank you for doing that too. And thank you for leaving a review for me. I really appreciate it. You can also look me up uh, at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com. You can see a lot of things there, including episodes of the show, some post-show commentary, as well as some original writing on my part. I am a writer looking to pitch a novel, which we'll be talking a little bit about today. So you can find me there. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me rather easily. Would love to chat with you and hear what you have to say about the show. Any suggestions, commentary, that type of thing. Right away, I want to make sure I thank this show's generous sponsor, Airway Science for Kids. You can check them out at airside.org. Uh, they are an amazing nonprofit that uh, helps provide underserved youth with life and career pathways in the aviation and aerospace world. And they do so in a very unique, holistic, broad-reaching, and dare I say, audacious way. So if you'd like to check out their work, be sure to visit them at airside.org, and you'll hear about more about them during the breaks. So I have a guest in studio today. We're going to be talking about writing, various kinds of writing, my writing, his writing, and I'll introduce him shortly. But as you've come to expect, we always start each episode with taking a look at the week that was in the news in a segment I call What in the World is Going On? This is 3,000 tons of wheat from last year's harvest. He can't sell this wheat because the Russian military has blockaded Ukraine's ports, so there's no way for this to be sold except at an, an enormous loss. There are so many different stories to tell about the war in Ukraine, and it almost gets to the point where each day they seem to be overwhelming as they come from every direction. I always love to get Ukrainian voices uh, into the picture when talking a little bit about it, because uh, really what is happening is an assault, not just on Ukraine, the nation, but on Ukraine, its people, its way of life, and what it produces for the outside world. And last week, there were a number of reports that not only is the Russian military targeting cities and civilians, but they're also targeting uh, the all-important wheat fields of Ukraine, particularly in the eastern section of the country. Ukraine is the number five wheat producer in the world, produces upwards of 20% of the world's wheat crop. But more importantly, uh, they produce the majority of the wheat crop for several areas of the world, like the Middle East and the uh, Asian subcontinent that isn't produced locally. So the fact that wheat is rotting in its silos because the Russians are blockading the Black Sea is a real problem, not just for Ukrainian farmers who are trying to make ends meet and trying to stay alive, but also for the global economy and for millions of people who rely on that grain to eat. So it, it just goes to show that in this interconnected world that we live in, 
this is a not just a, pot, a pebble in a pond that ripples out this war in Ukraine. This is a boulder falling into a lake that uh, threatens a whole lot of different areas uh, in everyone's lives, not just in Ukraine and Russia, uh, but elsewhere. And it's something worth keeping in mind that the Russians are deliberately targeting these things. So these aren't legitimate targets of war under any recognized international law, and yet it is happening with impunity. And so it's I like to keep these things front and center for us to be thinking about, because what's at stake here is not just the lives of Ukrainians, and that would be enough, right, in all this. It's so much more than that, which is why the Russian menace to what's going on needs to stay first and foremost, I think, in our minds. Bring things a little bit close to home for this second clip. It's obviously an alarming thing to learn that there were Secret Service text messages from January 6th itself and also the day before that were deleted as part of a device replacement program. Uh, we don't know what the facts are, and we're going to get to the facts about why that happened, and we're going to do whatever we can to retrieve the substance of those texts. That, of course, is Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, who is on the January 6th Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th, uh, 2021 assault on the Capitol, talking about the latest in the head shaking uh, developments out of that committee that the Secret Service has somehow deleted a number of texts that had to do with what happened on the day before and the day during uh, the assault on the Capitol. And not a good look, Secret Service. I'll just say it from the outset. Uh, but the bigger picture here for me is what really beyond just the details of what's coming out and the clarity of what happened that day and how far back this went and how far reaching this was, was a fear that I have looking back on this later on at the erosion of confidence that is happening uh, across the board with more and more entities in government and elsewhere that once upon a time we thought we could feel pretty confident about the Secret Service we all seem to think, you know, we should have a lot of confidence in because their reputation is that they are apolitical, that they stand for protection of the office and not just the individual. And it's hard to know whether that's been violated in all of this with, uh, that's going on. But certainly this is this is not the spotlight that the Secret Service wants. It's also not the spotlight, ideally, that any of us should really want an organization like that to be in. And my big concern from a historical perspective is, what does this all look like on the other end of this? However this looks, what will it take for us to restore our confidence in these institutions that have been so beaten and battered, not just over the January 6th uh, incident, but over the really the last, you could say, six years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, however far back you want to go. Uh, we have a major task in front of us, and it just reminds me more and more of all the reasons why Maybe, despite the fact that I'm sitting here talking about it, we should be spending more time listening to one another than talking at one another. All right. And finally, how about a good story <laughs> to wrap up this portion? What we're actually looking towards is a galaxy cluster halfway to the edge of the universe. Okay. And it has a very strong gravitational field surrounding it. Meanwhile, galaxies behind it, these that are curved into arc shapes... Their light passing through the universe, minding its own business. It sees this distortion in the fabric of space and time, and it curves in response to there, it. There Einstein be, predicted this. That, of course, is the legendary uh, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about the first images that have come back to Earth from the James Webb Telescope. The James Webb Telescope is a telescope that is a million miles away from Earth. It is orbiting the sun, actually, the Hubble Telescope, which was the previously most powerful one 
ever put into space orbited the Earth, but the James Webb telescope being a million miles away is getting photos of the larger universe that were simp are simply just really difficult uh, to absorb and believe. Shots of literally dozens of galaxies out there, each of them with perhaps millions of planets uh, and beyond. So many possibilities, and his excitement is, is certainly palpable there. What I find so exciting about this is that at a time where we are really insular and focused on ourselves, and it's understandable why we're worried about our day in, day out, that we are part of something much, much bigger out there and unknown. And for me, that's exciting. Some people find that intimidating. I find it exciting, and not because I can take the cynical line that, look, if we're going to destroy our own planet, we better find another one to get to pretty soon. <laughs> Some people are saying that. However, what I think is so amazing about this gift is that we get a chance to see from the size of the universe out there just how small we are, and yet right alongside that, because we're that small, we get a chance to see how unique and special we are in this time, place, and space. And that's something I think can bring us hope even in the ways that even in ways that maybe don't seem all that tangible but maybe are just as real i don't know something to think about anyway james webb telescope check out the images uh if you haven't seen them yet okay that's it for the news so let's get right to today's conversation i'm delighted to have in studio uh my friend troy hunter who is many things kind of a renaissance man in a lot of ways maybe you wouldn't call yourself that but i would <laughs> Uh, a really esteemed uh, attorney uh, in this area up here in the Pacific Northwest, an injury attorney, uh, and a very, very good one, by the way. And I can attest to that from a lot of people's uh, perspectives. Uh, but he's not here to talk about that, although I suppose we could if you're going to write a movie about a legal thriller, which I'm, I'm wondering about. Uh, but we're going to talk about writing. So first of all, Troy, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I asked Troy to come on because uh, Troy and I have a lot of things in common, but one of the biggest things we have in common is that we're both writers. And uh, listeners have heard me talk on this show before about the alternate history fiction novel that I've written and I'm pitching to publishers. And, and that's a slog, you know, and, uh, and Troy is laughing and nodding along because he understands what this process, the creative process and the attempt to, I guess, publish or in your case, produce uh, writing because uh, Troy Hunter, in addition to everything else he does, is a pretty accomplished screenwriter. He's written a number of screenplays, and uh, and yet it's a really unique set of stories for you as far as this goes. And I wanted Troy to come on to talk a little bit about what that process has looked like for him, creating things that he really loves and then trying to put it forward into the universe and get it produced, and all the challenges that come with that. So essentially, Troy, I'm taking the private conversations you and I have had over, you know, lunches, happy hours, things like that to talk a little bit in public. Because I think there's a lot to be said here about not just pursuing dreams, but the, the, the art, the craft, the work involved in writing. So with that as your preamble, why don't you, <laughs> why don't you tell everybody what kind of writing you do and, and what that's looked like for you as a screenwriter in your life? Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, I've I've always written ever since I was younger. You know, short stories, poems, things like that. Um, my dream, I guess, was that someday I'd write a novel, and uh, it would be amazing if that novel got made into a film. And then at some, I never did write the novel, but at some point the light went off. Hey, why don't I go straight to writing the script for the film instead of all the work like yourself of creating <laughs> the novel <laughs> the first. faster route? <laughs> the, the, yeah. Um, and so I started, you know, taking classes, courses, taught myself, you know, the screenwriting trade and art. 
Um, and then uh, was lucky enough to find a, a great partner in screenwriting. And the two of us have produced over a dozen feature film screenplays in about a dozen years mm. um, and have had various um, success uh, with those over time. Okay. And that's been going alongside your, your, your career arc. You're making making ends meet yes. arc, right? So going to law school and, and building a practice and doing all of that. So you have found, plus you're married, kids, grandkids. So it's not exactly like you've got a ton of extra time on your hands. <laughs> right. So you've managed to do that over 12 years. Has it been longer than that? Has it been about 12 years? About 12 years. About 12 years. Okay. So when it started 12 years ago, was it just because you said enough is enough? I want to start now. I've wanted to do this my whole life. What brought you to that point? That's an interesting question. Um, actually, it was my wife um, that I have to thank for for that. Um, I had finished law school and was in practice and kind of was established as far as my law practice. Um, but creatively, I, I didn't have an outlet at that point to, to really express my creativity and my creative writing. And she asked me, she said, so if you could do anything right now, what would you do creatively? What, what, what would be? I said, oh. I'd, I'd write, I just finished write, uh, reading a book and I said, I'd write a screenplay about that book. And she <laughs> said, well, why don't you reach out to the author? I'm like, well, it doesn't happen that way. She says, why not? So I tracked <laughs> down the author and we had a phenomenal conversation and he actually gave me the rights for a dollar to adapt his book into a screenplay. Wow. <laughs> you just cold reached out to him. Yep. Did you call him? Did you email him? Was Called he... him. Wow. Okay. He's an American, British? Yeah, yeah. He lives in the South. Okay. It was a World War II story Okay, about the Iron Cross. Uh, it was kind of like about the coming down of the, the wall and the East meeting West and okay. um, kind of a, a spy thriller. Okay. And I just loved the book and uh, loved the time, loved the place. I know you're also a World War II buff, so oh, yeah. you get it. Absolutely. And um, and he loved to talk about his story and his book, and it had been out for a little while, so it wasn't like something that was on the, the hot list. Mm -hmm. And I talked to him about what I wanted to do with it, and he says, sounds great. I'm happy to let you do it. And that became my first screenplay, was adapting his book into a screenplay. Okay, wow. How okay, So then you and your writing partner mm -hmm. do dove into this. How long did it take you to write that first screenplay? About a year. About a year. Okay. What was that process like? Was it something that you wrote something, your partner would write something? Would you collaborate together? Are you on the phone typing with one hand? How does, <laughs> how does that go? Yeah. It's actually really interesting. We've written a dozen screenplays together and we literally haven't written any two the same way. Huh. Some stories just present themselves in a different way. Some of them are episodic. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you write this part, I'll write the next part. We kind of leapfrogged over each other. Others, he kind of wrote the first half. I wrote the second half, and then we traded, and then we revised each other's first half, second half. Okay. Others, one of us wrote the entire first draft, and then the other one would rewrite it. And so it, it just kind of depended on the story and how it presented itself naturally to us as far as storytellers, how we approached it. Okay. All right. So that must have been quite a shot in the arm, getting, that, getting the rights to this book that you had loved for a dollar, and then you launched into it. So it takes you a year. Then- What's the next step after that or during that? Do you finish the screenplay and then put it out? How, what's that process look like? 
It does, again, depend. Most of the time in Hollywood, agents, managers, producers, directors, they want to see a finished script. Mm -hmm. You might have a great idea, but unless you're already an established commodity, you've had something produced or sold before, you're not going to really be able to sell an idea. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to want to see it. Um, But, you know, so I came up with the idea. Well, I didn't come up with the idea. I heard the idea. It's a true story about Elliot Ness. What happened to Elliot Ness after he put away Al Capone? Everybody knows the Al Capone story. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows what happened to Elliot Ness after that. It's true. And he became the director of public safety in Cleveland in 1939. And while he was there, there was this heinous serial killer striking the the hobos and the and the down and out in Cleveland and leaving their bodies laying around with no arms, no legs, no heads. So they called him the torso killer. And Elliot wow. Ness ended up embroiled in this hunt for bringing this killer to justice. And nobody knows that story. True story. I've never heard of it. And uh, and so we went to a screenwriting convention in Hollywood where one of the things you're able to do is a pitch fest. And you go around and you pitch to sure. directors, producers looking for scripts. Sure. Writing conferences have the same thing. Yeah. Right. And so we had our own material, scripts that we had f- finished. But we also had this idea about this Elliot Ness story. And my writing partner said, no one's going to want to do it. It's, it's period. It's expensive, you know, and all this stuff. I'm like, well, but if we have a chance to test it, can we do that? And he's like, sure. So we'd go around. We were pitching our stuff, and we had various success with our stuff. But if we had time, we'd say, oh, we also have this story about Elliot Ness. And we'd pitch it. It pitched through the roof. Everybody <laughs> wanted the script. We're like, where's the script? Send me the script. I was like, well, we don't have the script yet. Oh. And, you know, and they hate to hear that. If they like the idea, they want to see the script. Right. So it, it, it worked as a testing ground for us. I don't really recommend it because, again, <laughs> if they like it and they love it, they want the script. And to tell them you don't have it makes them a little sour. Right, right. So did you write that script? We did. It's, it's the one that won't die. Um, it keeps coming back and it keeps getting renewed interest. We have a competing project out there. There's another script about the same subject matter. I see. And we are each other's competition, but we are also each other's spoiler. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> for about 10 years, we've been, this, is, this one's oh been circulating. So right now, it's actually being worked up as a podcast. Really, like a serial podcast? A serial podcast dramatized in the old radio theater drama. Oh, how cool is that? Right? Um, so we're working on that right now, uh, rewriting it and writing it to a podcast format. Oh, man. Well, that's, that's fabulous. And I love, that, I love the creativity involved in making that shift away from one vision to another. So let's, let's pause right there, take our first break. And when we come back, we'll dig a little deeper into this. Uh, we're talking about screenwriting and all the pitfalls, perils, and joys of it with Troy Hunter. We'll be right back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, 
Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show is All About You. have my guest, Troy Hunter, screenwriter extraordinaire in the studio. He's rolling his eyes and laughing at me. But it is true. You told some amazing stories right before the break about uh, a couple of a couple of scripts that you've put forward. So, uh, And you just talked about converting one into a podcast serial, which just sounds absolutely fabulous. Uh, what has that presented, just really quickly, what has that presented to you in terms of a writing challenge. Is it different uh, fundamentally from screenwriting or are you finding differences in that process? Because doing podcast serials is kind of a newer thing. Sure. Yeah. You, don't, you don't get the visuals. Right. Uh, which is the problem, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um, and and you talked about the flexibility in the last section about mm-hmm. changing the format yeah. right, that we're writing for. And this story that we've done about Elliot Ness, we've actually gone through this several times with that project. Again, it just is one that won't die. Originally, it was written as a feature film. Yeah. Then as uh, streaming video became more popular, we ended up breaking it up and writing it into like a, a seven-part limited series. Okay. But still for a visual medium. Right, for, like Netflix or Right, exactly. Like that, sure. So we tried marketing it that way. But then we just got some interest uh, about a podcast. So now we're working on rewriting it, and we're having to strip out the visuals. How do we tell this story now without the, the benefit of having visuals where it's all like old-fashioned radio theater? So we're getting across now time, place, story through either audio, you know, sounds, right, of mm-hmm. what's going on in the city, um, or more narrative and people speaking and, mm-hmm. and describing what's going on or what happened um, because we are actually have now taken it and we're telling it a little bit in, in, in the past tense. Sure. So that we can have people talking more in a narrative type format. And so that is presenting challenges, but they're fun challenges to have because if you're a writer, you're a writer. You know, it's what you do because you have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you do it because you love it. You do it because you hate it. You you do it for <laughs> all the reasons. You just have no choice. <laughs> Yeah, well, the only choice you would have would be for it to just well up and explode out some other way, right? I mean, that's that's really true. I, I all of that really rings true. And for me, what I keep thinking about is, is you're right. However, writing comes about or wherever it takes you is the right place to be in that moment for a writer, right? It's it's something that what I've always enjoyed about it is writing really anchors me in the present moment more than anything else that I could possibly be doing. Even if I'm writing about something that's completely made up in my mind or writing about something in the past or inventing something about the future, there's something about it in the present that plugs me into myself more than anything else 
that yeah. I know. Right. Yeah. And I can tell you feel the same way. And I'm sure it's probably the same way for a lot of other creative enterprises, right? For people who paint or, you know, people who I can't think people who knit, I don't know, you know, just these, these types of things that you do it because it's something, there's something inside you to be told. That's how I viewed it. You know, somebody, people have asked me why I wrote my novel. I said, well, I had a story to tell. Right. You know, and usually surprises them because usually they're thinking, oh, well, I had this, you know, I want to get it published. Well, that, sure. I would like lots of people to read it, but that's not why I wrote it. Right. Because there's no guarantees there. There isn't. There isn't. And, but yet it's a fine line because, you know, if, if you're going to write something, you want people to see it. And it would be a wonderful thing. I know you and I agree on this. I would love for people to buy enough of what I write for me to be able to write more. Sure. More of the time. Sure. But that can't really be, it seems to me, what really sustains one. Maybe the hope of it. But you've been doing this for 12 years and you're, you know, you're talking about some near misses, right? right? Or ones that are still in development, right? right? How, do, how do you sustain that? I know it's been a long process for you. Has it been frustrating? Has it been deflating? How do you sustain yourself at those times where it's been that? Yeah, for sure frustrating. I mean, we have been extremely close. We, we have not had the success of having anything produced yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but for example, we won a Best Screenplay Award at the Austin Film Festival. Oh which Huge. is one of the most prestigious film festivals in the country. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you have to have luck along with the hard work. You know, mm-hmm. you have to have that lightning strike. And we won Austin, which is phenomenal. That set us up right after we won. The Writers Guild won on strike in Hollywood. Oh. And just pulled the rug out from under us, the wind out of our sails, the, you know, um, the, the, Doors that should have been opening were closed firmly against writers. You know, and that lasted for several months. And Hollywood has a very short memory. Yes. So by the time the writer strike was over and we started marketing and trying to say, hey, we, we won Austin. And they were like, what, last year? Oh. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, last year, but nothing happened since then. So isn't it still uh, fresh? But they're treating it like a BC to AD kind of transition, like it's something major when it's really just a year. Right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what was that like? To I mean, that must have just been really hard. Frustrating. I mean, it's frustrating, but you know, you still you still work it. You still have to put in the work and do the work, the highs, the lows, and just keep going. So, you and I have talked about this. It's like to get a book published, to get a film produced, it, it takes lightning striking. Yeah. It really, really does. And not just one lightning strike, but several mm-hmm. in succession yeah. for that to actually go all the way. Mm-hmm. And what we can do as writers is build ourselves a really good lightning rod. <laughs> but we still have to stand around waiting for lightning mm-hmm. to strike it. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so put in the work and hope for the best. Hope that you get that lightning strike. Because mm-hmm. you need it. You need the lightning strike to happen. So Yeah, it's it, there's only so much control that you have, you know. And and for me, that's why that answer of why'd you write the book being because I had a story to tell, I have to keep it there. You know, even as I work to get I want more eyes on it, obviously, would love for it to be successful. Uh, I have to keep it right there because the I had that was the first thing. I wanted to tell the story and see what it was like. I learned an immense amount about myself and about what I was capable of doing. 
uh, in writing this novel. It's still way too long, probably. That's probably part of the problem. It's 250,000 <laughs> words. It's, it's, it's a long, it's an immersive experience, as I call it, right? And a screenplay is what average, about 100 pages or so? Is that what it's supposed to be? Yeah, 120 pages. It's, okay. it's a page per minute of screen time is right. how you calculate it. So okay. two-hour films, 120 pages. Got it. Got it. Well, nice and simple, right? Yeah. You know, and, and a lot, you know, a lot these days with, with novels, you see a lot of people, you know, shooting for 100,000 words or 150,000 words. And, and I've, I'm, I honestly believe people will read long books if, if the subject matter is engaging enough, right? If they want it as an experience. Sure. Just ask Stephen King. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so of course it's Stephen King, right? And his own story is amazing because he ran, he went through the same chicken or egg process that every writer who's trying to get their stuff out there goes through, right? You mentioned, you know, Hollywood wants to complete a script, particularly if you haven't, right, done one before. Right. So in order to be successful at screenwriting or writing novels, it's a lot easier to do so after you have a novel published or after you have a movie made. But just getting there is so, is so challenging. And I like what you said about the lightning rod. You know, I, I keep thinking of, you know, Joseph Campbell, right, the great creative thinker who talked, you know, talks about the 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 hero's arc and you know the hero's dilemma and all those things and I was watching a documentary about him that a, a friend of mine uh, turned me on to and they were interviewing a bunch of people who've been influenced by him and there was a screenwriter on there I can't remember his name but he said you know what I learned from Joseph Campbell's ideas was that I was going to make a lot more of my own luck if I sent out 330 copies of my screenplay than if I sent out 33 and 33 would produce more for me than if I sent out three yeah. that's sort of what you're getting at right right yep. You know, yeah. putting in the work, m- making yourself a better lightning rod, make yourself more seen, more visible, more out there. Mm-hmm. Because the material, once it's out there, it's kind of like the internet, it's always going to be out there. And mm-hmm. it can always be discovered. Yeah. You know, you you hear these stories. They happen. A script is molding on a shelf in the, <laughs> the back office of some production company, but then some young aspiring you know, assistant producer goes through the old ones and says, hey, what about this one? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it, it, it actually is kind of relevant right now or mm-hmm. particularly relevant right now. And the next thing you know, you know, the writer's getting a call from out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. It happens. Yeah, it does. You know, and, and, and being in a position to move when something like that happens is so important. You know, I, my, my novel is an alternate history of what if uh, the D-Day invasion had failed and the Soviet Union conquers all of Europe to end World War II. Nazi Germany is defeated, just like in real life. But there's not an American and British presence on the continent. So everything's going to be different, right? And I thought it was really significant. I've got a historical background as a historian in these areas. But I tell you what, a lot more people have been reaching out to me interested in knowing more about it since Russia invaded Ukraine. I was going to say, all of a sudden it's become more current. All of a sudden more current. <laughs> and I feel, a part of me feels like a heel in some ways because, you know, I don't want a, a really bad war to, to make my ideas more popular. And yet it would be undeniable or it would be, it would be silly right. to deny that maybe there's a more sense of relevance. Maybe there's more people wanting to know, whoa, where did this come from or what's this background or I don't know as much about this time period or the time period since as I thought or would like. Sure. So all that's advantageous. So I've been trying to get more stuff out there that way. And it, of course, it's still a grind. But you're right. The more you can put out, the better. And you got a perfect proof. You called, you cold called an author <laughs> and got permission, right? That's, that's pretty instructive, right? right? So it, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Uh, you know, again, my wife, the the smarter of the the, the pair here, um, you know. She said, "Why why not? 
Yeah. That's all, she, you know, that was her question to me. What would you do? I'd do this. Why not do it? Well, because it doesn't typically work that way. Well, you're not going to find out if you don't try. No kidding. No <laughs> kidding. Because, I mean, we, we, you, you know the answer if you don't do anything, right? The, <laughs> the answer is no. So, so, yeah, so it's quite a process. For me, I'm, I'm 59, I think, rejections in to the process of, of sending out to agents and, and, and the like. And some of those rejections hurt a little more than others. You know, some of those sting a little more, particularly, you know, if it's a, if it's a prominent agent or, you know, a place you really could see the book getting published. Is it a similar thing with, with how scripts are pitched or are you pitching more to individuals than to companies? How does that process go? All the above, okay. you know, because again, the entree can come from anywhere. It can be from an actor who likes the material. And so then you get it in that way. It can be from a director that likes it, a producer that likes it, an agent, a manager, you know, you just, you, so you want to show it to anybody and everybody. You want to get it out there as much as you can so mm -hmm. that you spark the interest, the passion of somebody who's going to champion that to the next person, who's going to champion mm -hmm. it to the next person, because it's a series of pitches, right? It's a series right. of sales jobs all the way through to the end. Right. Man. So what, uh, what sustains you in all of this, if you don't mind me asking? It's 12 years. And how many? You've done one a year. Yeah, about one a year. 12 of them. Yep. Out there swimming. Hey, how do you keep track of that? You got like a hell of a spreadsheet somewhere? <laughs> or, you know, what? How do you keep track of that? And how do you sustain yourself through all of the, because it's a lot of uncertainty. It is. You know? And, and there's a reason that writers have reputations for not necessarily handling uh, stress well. <laughs> but I know you do. And I work hard to, to do as well. So what sustains you in all that? How do you keep track of all that? It, you know, it, I guess it just keeps coming back to the love and the passion of the writing itself. You know, enjoying the process. Mm -hmm. If you don't enjoy the process, then I don't know why you're doing it, really. Because you can't do it just to be produced as a screenwriter or published as an author. Um, it would be great if that happens, but that's not why you do it, right? Mm -hmm. You do it because you have a story to tell. You do it mm -hmm. because you have a love of the writing. My partner and I that we wrote together for a dozen years, we enjoyed the process of working with each other. It made sure. it fun. Um, sure. Our trips down to Hollywood to meet with people were fun. So mm -hmm. I've had a good time doing this. We've had some financial success because things have been optioned by people who had the interest to want to gotcha. produce it. But it didn't get that next lightning strike, right? It didn't get, yeah. get past that. Um, so, and then, you know, you're talking about the spreadsheet. I don't have a spreadsheet for the 12 <laughs> projects we've written. The spreadsheet I have is for the dozens of ideas of stories that we still want to write. Sure. So we've been writing for 12 years. We've written 12 screenplays. We haven't had anything produced yet, but there's always the next one that we're anxious to write. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep writing. We're going to keep putting out the material because who knows? One of these days, lightning might strike. Right. Absolutely. And right, and right in the right order that you needed to. Right. And then everybody listening can come back to the show and go, see? <laughs> <laughs> So really quick before we jump into our next break, what's uh, what's the most recent one you've worked on or the one you're working on now? What what story do you have going on if you're willing to share it? Yeah, no, no, not not a problem at all. Um, the one we're working on right now is actually about um, the nurses in World War II. Okay. I, we keep kind of coming back to World War II. It's, hey. it's, it's a love. It's, um, it's rich fabric. It is. Right. It really is because really. there's so many stories, yeah. right? We've seen 
so many stories and they can be super small stories mm-hmm. but um so that that the world implications that that World War II caused yeah. everything from individualistic to massive on a grand scale there's stories throughout all oh, of Oh yeah that. everything is poignant and powerful whether it's individual or massive macro and so um, the story right now is, is called Nightingales, and it's about um, nurses on the front line of the North Africa Theater. Oh, okay. In 1942, 43. Yeah. Okay. And sort of a unique take on what people would think about with nurses? I know the answer to this, which is why I'm asking. Well, it is because um, at the time, uh, it was the first time ever that the medical teams landed with the troops and advanced on the front lines with the troops. So crazy. And it was so and it was the first time women had ever been with the fighting troops on the front line. So the problems and the implications of that no kidding. are fascinating. Wow. So this is based on true stories that you read from someone's memoirs or you read in newspaper Multiple. articles? Multiple. Multiple. Okay. So it's based on true stories. Yes. Are any fictional characters you're mixing in? Yeah. The the whole thing is fictionalized, but it's based on a whole lot of True stories, uh, a lot of research, um, and it's, it's again, it's just the fodder for storytelling. It's immense. Oh, man. And, and I can tell uh, just watching you and listening to you, just the excitement uh, in all of it. I, I get it. And it's, it's really fun when you think you, when there's something that you know is a good story and maybe you have this experience, too. You think it's going to craft a certain way, and you end up getting a little bit surprised sometimes with where it goes. That happened to you at all? It does. Yeah, it happens to me all the time. Every chapter of the book I wrote, I, at the end of it, I went, okay, I knew I was generally going here. I didn't expect these various things to happen. It's almost like the story can tell itself sometimes, isn't it? Well, it does. You 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 embody the characters yeah. so much, and you try to breathe as much life into them as you can. I mean, it's what makes Stephen King great. Every single one of his characters mm-hmm. come alive on the page. Yes. And, and he has such complex stories with so many different characters he needs that for it to sustain, and he can do it. And once your characters can breathe on their own, they do. They take over and tell their own stories. They do. They do, and it builds momentum you know, as time goes by because as they develop personalities, you go, well, they wouldn't do A, B, and C. They would do D and E, where earlier in the story, they might have the whole alphabet of choices because <laughs> they haven't been developed. All right, well, then let's take our second break, and when we come back, we'll uh, finish up talking about this, have some fun questions to ask you. So stick around. Come on back, everybody, to This Show is All About You with screenwriter Troy Hunter. Thanks. Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more. 
with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you here with Troy Hunter, uh, screenwriter. We're talking about uh, the fun and the joy of writing, almost the necessity of it if you're a writer. Uh, any artists out there of any kind will understand that. But we're also talking about the challenges, uh, not just to getting something produced and published for the public, but all the challenges that can produce internally and in our lives and all that kind of thing. And and hopefully what's come out for you is that really the joy of doing something uh, is really the fuel that sustains things, right? And and fortunately, one of the great things for being writers of any kind or viewers of movies or tell there's plenty of material out there to inspire, yes. isn't there? Yeah, there's plenty. You know, and you mentioned uh, several times we've mentioned Stephen King before the break, and his books terrify me. I mean, I I've read I've read my favorite of his is The Stand. It always always will sure. be. But he also wrote a book on writing. You know, his own story, part of the process of writing, but also his kind of his story as a writer which I found immensely helpful. And he, he has a quote in there where he says, you know, the, in his experience, the best readers are writers and the best writers are readers. Um, I think we could probably transpose that into films. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. In, in some ways. So let's talk a little bit about um, inspiration on these things, you know, just kind of fun way. Uh, any particular writers, screenwriters, producers, filmmakers that really had inspired you maybe from a younger age to get into this or was it kind of an a kind of an accumulation didn't really care who was making it you just knew if it was good which one was it yeah that that uh so my screenwriting partner is one of the things he brought to um the duo is he has an encyclopedic brain when it comes to the names of writers right what movies they did directors what movies they did producers what movies they did i never paid any attention to any of that I just got into the film, mm. you know, I, I didn't even stick around for the credits. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it didn't matter to me. I just, I love the experience of the film and the experience of the dialogue. My mom used to give me a hard time when I was a kid. She, she'd tell people he can remember every line of a movie he just saw, but he can't remember to take out the trash. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, I can relate to that, right? <laughs> yeah. I can still remember the jingles of sitcoms from the 1980s, but I can't remember why I walked into the room <laughs> from my room. Yeah, it's just kind of, there's something in there about brain biology, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. So this was mainly, if if a story grabbed your attention, that's what mattered. Yes. Right. And so did you kind of learn, self-taught in that sense? Like you kind of learned from accumulation over time what what worked well in telling a story? Is that kind of how you got into it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was a I was a voracious reader and and a voracious movie watcher, and so I think between those two things, then I started looking at like Science of the Lambs, oh. which was a phenomenal book. Yeah, and then it was a phenomenal film adapted from the book, and it was one of the the first times that I really really appreciated the two that I read the book and then I saw the movie, and then I started really dissecting. What did they take out of the book and make the movie? What did they not take out of the book and yes. make the movie? And, you know, why was that so good and so successful? Mm -hmm. And that's when I really started dissecting and, and doing that with other stories, other movies, and why I started with a book and adapting a book mm -hmm. uh, into a screenplay first instead of trying to create something from whole cloth. Sure. As I really got into the adapting the book into the film. It really is a fascinating thing. I do the exact same thing, but from the opposite ring, 
like being being having the person writing a book, I want to see what people are doing visually because the, the storytelling options you have with visual are different. Yes. Than when it's just the words, right? You were talking about with the serial podcast you're doing. You have to have more words in there. More exposition has to be spoken or in the case of the novel written mm-hmm. in a film, you can show maybe something that takes a page in a book in four seconds. Right. If you show it right. 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 You know, if, if or you only have to write one sentence mm-hmm. and the director is going to extrapolate that out to this huge scene. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. OK. So, yeah. And I think of like, you know, of course, The Godfather. Right. Adapted from Mario Puzo's novel. Right. Considered by many the greatest film of all time. Uh, yeah. That's an interesting thing for me. Like and, and cer- certainly more so, you know, there were the Harry Potter books, you know, turned into into movies. And so many people didn't like those because maybe because it didn't match up with what right. people envisioned. For right. That. I was really fortunate. I'm actually probably one of the few people who saw all the movies before I ever read the books. So I felt like I got a real treat when I finally sat down and read the books. I had pneumonia and I needed something to do when I was awake and I read all those books. But the differences are striking. You can't get every single thing in no. to a film that you're going to have in a novel. There's just simply no way to do it. And and ones that try to do it tend not to work right. as films. I mean, when you're writing um, from true stories, uh, you know, there's a saying in Hollywood that uh, true life isn't lived in three acts. <laughs> Right. (laughs) But your film has to be. Mm -hmm. And so when you're looking at that material from true life, true stories, you have to create the three act structure out of the material you're given. Yeah. Yeah. The Joseph Campbell thing again. Right. With the crisis at the end of the second act and, you know, the the big movement and reluctant hero moving forward, all that. Yeah. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than, than just that, if that was the only thing. Okay, so, yeah, it was similar for me as a writer. I don't think there was any certain novelist that blew me away. I mean, I was into fantasy as a kid, so the Tolkien novels, of course, C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, those were almost anything science fiction. You know, I consumed Star Wars novels like they were Tic Tacs, you know, as a kid. (laughs) But anything that I could read that inspired me to think of things or consider things in a new way, I always really enjoyed, right? And over time, now what I love is almost any kind of story can capture me from any genre anywhere. And and then it's a really interesting experiment, particularly if I'm inspired to go down that road to maybe create, how did I get here? What's going on in my life? Or what lessons have I learned yeah. about where I'm going? I have found it to be a wonderful roadmap for self-examination and growth for myself. For it sure. sounds like you have too. Yeah. Well, character, character is everything. Really, it is. Um, so like one of my favorite, if I would say, what, what one film have I been like, put up there on a mantle and, and been like, man, if I could just write that, mm. if I could just write. The one you wish you wrote? Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, American Beauty. Oh, wow. You know, an Academy Award yeah. winning script uh, yeah. for a good reason. Mm-hmm. It's a, a phenomenal script because the characters are so amazing. And so unique from yeah. what had been seen in, in film before or really since. And, and the thing is, I, you know, I think one of the things that people maybe confuse is that they try to write drama and they put characters into it mm. instead of writing characters and let them create the drama. Oh, I love that. So you, you've got to really develop the characters and, and let the drama come out of the characters and the interaction between the characters, the conflict, the drama, because that's where it's going to come from. You mm-hmm. can't go, oh, I had this great idea for this dramatic story, and then I'm just going to throw some characters in there to act it out. 
Yeah. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. And I love that because it's what people are going to connect with are characters that in some way, shape, or form they can relate to, they're intrigued by. There's some sort of emotional response. If they're the bad guy, the antagonist, do they do they provoke whatever you need them to provoke? Yeah. Right. I think of, um, you know, for me, Joaquin Phoenix and Gladiator, you know, oh, yeah. um, as Commodus, I wanted him dead 30 minutes into that film. And that's a two and a half hour movie. I had to wait a while. Right. For him. to <laughs> Spoiler alert for him to be dispatched right at the end of this. Hopefully people, most people have seen Gladiator. By but now. he was. But the character of him was so well crafted because they just dug into his every single part of his neuroses. Yep. And they did it in such a way that it wasn't preachy. They didn't spend a lot of time on it. There was just the combination of script, cinematography, acting, editing, all the things that make a story mm-hmm. of any kind that. To me, I, he was such a bad guy that I wanted gone. Right? But but he was such a, a developed bad guy. Yes. He wasn't a, a mustache twirler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. right? <laughs> I mean, he was really, really well developed to where you you hated the person that he became. Yeah. You understood yeah. why he became the person he yeah. became, but mm-hmm. you still hated him for it. Yeah, and what he costs the main character. Right. So it drives the the, the main character's revenge story. Right. forward and, and he was so central to that movie and yet you couldn't manufacture that drama just say we're gonna have this drama and and the character just be wooden no it wouldn't work right it's you're ru- invested right it ruins some of the great like you can re- see these movies that end up being disappointing and you go well the story's fine but the character execution was poor that's right. what we always almost always say very i haven't never heard anybody say well the characters are great but the story <laughs> doesn't really work that way right look at jaws Oh my goodness. Jaws is just a killer shark story. It is. It could have been really boring. It could have been. And it, in some ways it worked well because you didn't see the shark all the time. Right. Right. And so but the characters and the actors who played those characters were so great. Mm-hmm. It elevated the story. Yeah. It took what was a basic story and made it timeless. Yeah. Yeah, and it still works. It right. still does. Still does. I saw it not all that long ago, and it reminded me that the first time I saw it, I think I was 12 or 13 years old, and I couldn't even go into the pool at night. Like, the light had to be on in the pool if I was swimming at somebody's house. You know, it was it was that much. Alien did the same thing to me, right? I couldn't walk through a dark hallway after I saw Alien for like a year when yeah. I was a kid, you know? And and still to watch that this, to this day produces different... I mean, I can walk through hallways now, but I still appreciate the depth to which those character-driven stories, simple as they are, straightforward as they are, captured me for the long term. We're talking about movies that came out in the 70s and early 80s. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they put these, those brain worms in, right, mm-hmm. that we can't get rid of, especially the ones that we saw when we were younger. Yeah. Right? And they become, those stories become a part of us. They do. They, they really do. do. They do, and they help shape what we think about, what we care about, where our interests go. You know, that's why I've never thought that, you know, good novels or good movies are simply just entertainment. Um, they become they become cultural touchstones, the big ones, right, the good ones, and they, and they inspire. And even small films can do that, right? And we yeah. live in an age now where you can find content just about anywhere uh, in so many different places. We live in kind of this interesting age of storytelling, right? Some of the best and some of the worst. Yeah, yeah. Well, there. I think what that really says is at the end of the day, we're we're not writers, and you know, writing is a a method of storytelling. Mm. We're storytellers. Yeah, 
And there have always been in the human culture storytellers. Yeah. And it, they've been fundamental to life. <laughs> they've been fundamental to cultures, fundamental to history, fundamental for us to find meaning as people in a world, galaxy, universe that can seem really, really difficult to define, really difficult to find one's place in. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, that's why we do what we do is because we're storytellers and we have to tell stories to yeah. breathe. Yeah. That's really true. That's really true. So are you as fired up as I am to like go work on whatever it is that you're working on? Yeah. Because yeah. I am. I, you know, I'm looking at the clock, not just because we only have a certain amount of time, but I'm like, man, why can I get back to, to this? I'm kind of inspired by this. So, right. It's one of the great things about talking between writers is you kind of feed off of that. So, yeah. yeah so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come pleasure. in. Yeah. Thank is you. there, is there any, um, any recent film you've seen real quick, last thing that just blew you away that you think people should see if they haven't seen it yet? Oh, gosh. I wish you would ask me that one before we started. Oh. Uh, <laughs> to give me a minute. Because, you know, we haven't been to the theaters in so long. That's true. Um, and and streaming has, has really taken over. So I've been watching um, limited series more. I guess the most recent one that really blew me away would be The Fall. Okay. With Gillian Anderson. Yes. Um, three seasons, uh, a, a British uh, cop procedural thriller. Okay. Um, really super well done. Okay, well, then that's next on my list. So that's what I'm going to do. And I'll recommend a book to you at some point when I can think of one because I asked you the question without knowing the answer myself. So anyway. <laughs> that's thanks. cheating. Yeah, I know. Thanks so much, Troy, for coming in. We'll probably have you come back, and good luck with everything that you're working on. Thank thanks you. For being it, was, here. it was a pleasure. Thank you. Great. And thanks to all of you for listening to this uh, episode of This Show is All About You. Make sure to check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com, for a follow-up to this episode and other episodes. You can also reach out to me there if you have any questions or comments. If you missed this or any other episode, you can download it from wherever you get your podcasts. I want to make sure I give my thank yous. This show is all about you. is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is the in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. The original theme music for this show is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. So, And then special thanks for contributing to this episode. And all that went well for me this week has to go to Troy and Kathleen Hunter, Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Mark and Yolanda Frazier, Bethany Spitzer, Lorelai Murray, Bruce Bullard, Kathy Van Eka, Antoinette Bernardo, Stacey Heller, Bruce Flammer, Jenny Butts, Adelina Popescu, and Steve, Abby, and Luke Foster, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thanks to the Seattle Mariners for extending their winning streak to 14 games because that kind of thing just doesn't happen, especially to this fan. I'd like to thank Carne Asada for just being nearly unbeatable to my palate. I'd like to thank Anthony DeMello for his continued wisdom, even though he passed away in 1987. And then final thanks to the James Webb Telescope for reminding us all how both how small we are and thus by extension how unique and special we actually really are. And to you listeners, thank you. I couldn't do this for you without you. And finally, as a way to send you off into the rest of the week, we'll end with this original haiku. We write what we know, or so they say. What if we wrote for what we hoped? Chins up, everyone. 